I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest today is Adam Charlapyman, principal at the architecture and design firm Charlapyman and Herrero, which he co-founded in 2014. Adam's work is grounded in a deeply considered approach to all aspects of the built environment, creating spaces imbued with a rich sense of history and narrative. His work ranges from residential interiors to art galleries, furniture, opera sets, and recently a collection of Abaca rugs, wallpapers, and fabrics in collaboration with Schumacher and Patterson Flynn Martin. Recently, Adam designed an exhibition at Friedman Bende Gallery entitled Blow Up, in which he and curator Felix Berchter transformed the gallery into a life-size dollhouse, creating architectural elements through scaled-up prints of Adam's watercolor illustrations. The imagined spaces were then furnished with the work of a dreamlike roster of contemporary artists and designers. At the center of Adam's work is the idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art. He has a unique way of understanding interiors that goes far beyond the decorative. Instead, his spaces feel as if they're part of an ever-expanding narrative, often funny, full of twists, and always fascinating. Here I am with Adam Charlapyman. It's funny, usually I do this like, kind of chronologically, but I thought it might be fun to start with this recent show at Freeman Benda, Blow Up. Cool, yeah. It's kind of a zany show, so if you're describing it to someone, how do you, how do you go about it? I mean, we worked very closely on a lot of aspects of the show with Felix Berichter, who curated it. He had a very, a very particular vision for uh, the types of pieces he wanted to include, art and furniture, um, and the artists he wanted to engage. It was very much a collaborative process, putting putting the whole thing together. When he came to us, it was about it was about cardboard and maquettes, mm-hmm. and he was interested in exploring this kind of funny relationship between the model and the realized product, and um, what happens between those things. Um, it evolved pretty quickly into a kind of more precise examination of scale, or maybe a more literal examination of scale. Mm-hmm. And um, into a kind of like dollhouse themed show that was exploring childhood and gender and the role of play in one's upbringing. There was kind of one major jumping off point for us a studio visit early on with Katie Stout, in which she showed us her chair from her thesis project at RISD, which was a a literal enlargement of a chair from her childhood dollhouse. Hmm. So it that that meant that it, she had taken this little chair from the dollhouse and had scaled it up with very intense precision and and had scaled it up to become something that was sort of a monster. I mean it was really weird proportions mm-hmm. and really off. Um funny enough uh, that was how it was, we perceived it, and now that it's in the show, I think there's certain parts of that history that are very present, but um, it also has been uh, thought of as something that's very chic and looks like Charlotte Perriand or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, I guess it's funny how sort of things can be awakened. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah, so once once we got to that chair, the whole thing kind of unraveled as this amazing exploration of, of scale and childhood and gender um, sort of through the uh, context of a life-size dollhouse. Mm-hmm. Well, and what were those things for, for you growing up? I mean, it seems like, I mean, it can't have been a, a coincidence that Felix wanted to do this with you because 
you know, you do like you've talked to me about maquettes before. I've seen them. I've seen like the you know the, that maquette from is it uh, where is it from from Morocco? In yes, your, in your yeah. house. Uh, so had you had conversations about that? Like, what was your history with that? Those yeah. ideas. Well, Felix saw. Um, I guess Felix was in Chicago for the architecture biennial last mm-hmm. year, and um, my firm was invited to participate. We contributed a model uh, to the biennial. It was in a room of other models. We were all responding to the prompt of uh, creating a miniature depiction of an iconic canonical interior Mm -hmm. based on a photograph, Mm -hmm. actually. (laughs) It was a very specific prompt. So we had to create a model of a canonical interior based on a photograph of that interior. What did you choose? And we chose the salon of Yves Saint Laurent and Pierre Berger on Rue de Babylon. And that was a really kind of powerful interior for us in this firm. It sort of all of design history in one room like he just had so much amazing stuff and uh art paintings furniture it's just uh, totally unbelievable and it's a huge room so Mm -hmm. he was able to put a lot in it and um it had initially been designed by Jacques Grange and then kind of morphed into this very singular creation of Yves Saint Laurent's a little bit like a pharaoh's tomb in Mm -hmm. a way it was kind of like all the riches in the world put into one room kind of locked in up. this yeah, yeah and, and like a lot of it wasn't a very public room it was a, mm-hmm. it, funny enough it seems like the kind of ideal place to have a party but actually it was very private and not mm-hmm. a lot of people saw it was this the same room that was sort of was this part of the auction that, yes. that happened so that was actually that was a big part of what we were doing uh-huh. so we chose this room or i had the idea to do something about yves saint laurent's collection right then uh, I found amazing photographs of art handlers dismantling that room. Oh wow! And they're quite—they're quite moving. I mean, there's something a little comical about them, and then something really heartbreaking too, because there are these people from Christie's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> rummaging through. Someone everything. might think, you know, the undertakers of art, you know. <laughs> Coming indictment and, there, um, you know, <laughs> lifting these legers off the wall with gloves, and there's mm-hmm. bubble wrap all over this room, and packaging materials strewn about, and you know the Brancusi is on the floor, yeah. and just the whole thing. It's like, <laughs> oh my god! And then there's pictures of it basically empty, uh-huh. with the rug rolled up, and I just that I think seeing the ephemerality of something that's just so impressive, like that collection and this man's vision for for material culture i mean seeing something like that just sort of get packed up mm-hmm. was uh was amazing and i wanted to capture that and we yeah so we made models of that room at three different times of day mm-hmm. on the day that it was packed for auction so it's at morning evening and night of the day it was packed up to sort of at different stages of its of its demise in a, in a exactly wow. yeah so we showed it intact in the morning mm-hmm. with like light streaming through the windows and then we showed it uh, with the boxes everywhere and then we showed it at night completely empty with like a scrap of paper on the floor and that was all done in watercolor and we 
were very meticulous about recreating the furniture, which was all in cardboard. We based everything off the dimensions of the pieces in the auction catalog, which, funny enough, is itself a design object, I suppose, an anthropological piece of of history. It's um, extremely expensive, the, the, and the, the auction catalog, catalog uh-huh. and is itself something that comes up in other people's auctions mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, that's um, weird. Yeah, and we had to like ask someone to like borrow theirs and it was like a huge deal (laughs) right right, Um, right. well i know it it was louise lawler as well who who uh photographed that collection before it was dismantled as well right i don't know actually but that sounds amazing i mean i love louise lawler so I, i think unless i'm unless i'm uh maybe i'm making a grand error so I'll correct myself later if, if if this is not true, but I'm pretty sure that Louise Lawler did a body of work that was photographing that that's you know, so cool that room before it was taken apart. It'd be cool for you to see. I would really like to see. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it just I mean I can imagine her being interested in it. It's very charged. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a very weird like cross section of kind of the market and personal taste mm-hmm. and like a sort of autobiographical product. Like the collection is so great as a whole. Mm-hmm. I feel like art and design is activated in such a, a way that's that it's so much more engaging when it's connected to kind of like someone's vision, like a, like a, almost like a person, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think sometimes when you see them in, in just sort of traditional collections, there's kind of a flattening effect. You kind of take things for granted, yeah. you know. So there's something so beautiful seeing it in someone's private, you know, quarters. It's kind of yeah. amazing. So you saw, Agreed. so Felix saw that. Yeah. So he's right. Yeah. So that's why we're talking about that. So he. He saw that and he liked the watercolor aspect and he could tell, I guess, that I was really into like mini things because it was very, um, obviously, it was obviously a labor of love. Mm -hmm. I think that that came through (laughs) and, um, he, he had this idea to do this show that was going to be out of cardboard Mm -hmm. at the time because it was the Maquette show. So we thought it'd be cool if I created some kind of cardboard world Mm -hmm. for the show, which evolved into like a watercolor world and the dollhouse thing. But yeah, so it's all all connected. So what you kind of did was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, so you you basically made watercolors of of these architectural elements like items and and then blew them up, printed on vinyl, right? Yes. And then affixed to cardboard and that that sort of serves as kind of the the architecture, if you will, of the of the show. Yeah, so we created almost like a kit of parts, you could mm-hmm. think of it, because we made um you know, we made one door and one doorknob and the doorknob had a shadow on it, so you could put it on whichever side you needed to put it on. And mm-hmm. the doorknob was a separate vinyl from the door, for instance. And then we made one quarter of the rug mm-hmm. and then we made one side of the curtain and half of the valance and kind of these things that then you had to print multiple times Mix and, and match elements, you know, put them together. It was loosely based on the concept of the sort of modular dollhouse that Felix inherited from his older sister, which was called the Cindy. I guess that's kind of like a, a proto Barbie toy and the Cindy dollhouse was kind of a structure made out of plastic I-beams and it came with cards that were printed with little illustrations of the walls of the different rooms of this house Mm -hmm. that you could kind of slide into the I-beam structure they were kind of 
slotted in. Right. And we mimicked that modularity in our our show. All the walls are the same size. Um, they're all the same exact dimension. And they're these kind of floating cardboard cards, if you will. How did you approach choosing designers to be in the show? Like, like was it, how did you pitch them on this idea? Yeah, so it was really fun. So we, well, the show is obviously, it's a mix of commissioned pieces uh, for the show. Mm-hmm. A few pieces that are existing by contemporary designers and artists. And then a few what we were kind of calling heritage pieces. So things that the gallery had that mm-hmm. were important historical design pieces. Um, first, we looked at the historical design pieces and began to pull things that might be good for the show. Then I made a model that folded up uh, and made, you know, it was a little fold up box of a room, uh, of the four rooms mm-hmm. of the show. Uh, so living room, kitchen, dining room, five rooms. Mm-hmm. Living room, kitchen, dining room, adults room, and kids room. Big apartment. And yeah, and we we took that model around, sort of with an understanding of what the heritage pieces were, to different designers, and essentially decorated the space with them. So as we went along, we might say, well, we're considering using these Kuramata sofas, and it would be really great if we had a coffee table in the middle would you want to make a coffee table? And mm-hmm. they would say either, you know, yes, or I would really love to make, you know, a lamp for this area. And then, you know, we just fleshed out the whole space, uh, kind of studio visit by studio visit until mm-hmm. the whole thing was furnished. Like like we said, a lot of the elements in this in this show are, are you know, the, the first stage are these watercolors. And then you're also just showing me a second ago, it's a, it's a really key part of how you, of how you work and how you think about spaces. So what's the, how did you start working that way? Like what's the history with watercolors? I mean, did you do that when you were growing up? Uh, no, I didn't. So I didn't have any formal training doing interior design or architecture. I studied furniture design. So I got used to drawing, representing, you know, a piece of furniture as I was designing it. And I played around with watercolor a little bit to do that, um, sketching, you know, that kind of stuff. But when I started getting into uh, sort of opportunities to really consider entire spaces, I ran into the conundrum of how I would present the options to clients Mm -hmm. and kind of just decided to try out really doing these watercolors in an intense way, kind of inspired by uh, all the watercolors that I saw in the Mondardino book that he published in the 80s. And Renzo? Yeah. And in that book, there's all of these amazing watercolors. Mm-hmm. And or I guess they're gouaches, probably. And he does the fold-up thing. And um, I just looked at that book so much in college. And always thought, you know, oh my God, like if I could hire somebody to decorate my studio apartment in Providence, Rhode Island, (laughs) I would love to hire Mongiardino. And I would just be so excited for the meeting when he would come with all these watercolor things. It just seemed like such a a great way to kind of present your idea, to not overwhelm the client with the sort of like formality of a rendering um, or hyper-realistic rendering. 
and to capture kind of the, the the part of the process that is very, you know, it's it's a fantasy. It's from your dream, like what this room could look like. And not to mention, it's also more efficient than making a rendering because, you know, to model in a computer, in, in a program like CAD, to model a rhino weird furniture, the kind of furniture that we put into our projects mm-hmm. would be like really monumental mm-hmm. whereas to watercolor it it's like not a, that big of a deal so there's an element yeah. where it's it's more like the the watercolor is more of like an impression you know it's really driven by kind of color and 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 texture and and there are these sort of you know elements that are that are collaged on top and it's not as dependent on this kind of like right angle precision you know it's a very different feeling than looking at a than looking at a rendering yeah Definitely. Yeah. What did your parents do? My mother's an artist. She's a painter mostly. And um, my dad actually is trained as a painter, but he does toy design and is involved with a lot of aspects of production of toys, all different kinds. They're both very creative and very, they make a lot of things with mm-hmm. their hands. And my mom in particular really has this kind of amazing ability to imagine something in her head and then create it with her hands she can just make anything look exactly the way she's thinking it should Mm -hmm. whether it's you know a pancake or a um painting Mm -hmm. or a faux painted box or um you know a slip cover for a sofa it's just uh, incredible to me um and she and her sister is also like that, who's also an artist, who made that flower, the copper flower in the corner. So it was a big influence on you growing up. What did you think you were going to do? Were you a super creative kid? Were you, were you always going to be doing this? I thought I wanted to be an architect since I was like mm-hmm. two or three years old. So <laughs> I haven't really gotten very creative with, uh-huh. the, with the options. Yeah, no, I, always, I, I really always wanted to do do this and was relatively tunnel vision on on getting there both my parents went to RISD Mm -hmm. they met there and um even when I was really little before I even understood what RISD was I was like wanting to go to RISD (laughs) so (laughs) it was pretty pretty much a very rote process and you and you did it. What do you? What was your what was your experience at RISD like? Um, well, it was amazing. I mean, actually, I didn't apply to RISD for architecture, uh, even though I did think I might transfer into it. I applied for graphic design, but I I loved it so much. I mean, the opportunity to try all these different mediums and uh, the furniture program was incredible. It was kind of staged semester by semester as uh, the mastering of a different material or process. So the first semester was hand tools and wood. The second semester was machine tools and wood. The third semester was metal. The fourth semester was plastic. The fifth semester was mold making. And the last semester was your thesis. It was just so Mm -hmm. mind-blowing to get to work with all those types of processes and stuff and I loved it yeah what what, what did you gravitate towards what was your by the end of all of that um and the time I got to my thesis I was beginning to think that I wanted to do something with a more kind of holistic vision for a space like an interior or a stage design or film set design or something in that vein because I was really interested in the idea of Gesamtkunstwerk and opera sets that I was looking at and World all this building. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so for my thesis, uh, I made a chair 
an ur- that chair, the face chair. I made an urn that's up there with this uh, with the face face and a, te- a few textiles, and then I illustrated them into kind of interiors of my design. Yeah, at that point, I was already kind of thinking that if I could do an interior. I, I guess I wasn't really thinking about doing interiors for anyone else, but I was thinking about doing my own apartment, um, mm-hmm. which was actually also part of my thesis, I forgot to say. So, yeah, I did my own apartment um, in Providence, which was just a really small apartment, but it was kind of this cool room in this old Italianate building. Providence has all these beautiful, beautiful old houses, and I had the kind of like living room of a nice old house. and. I tried to make it feel I was I was sort of trying to make it feel like the apartment of uh Nikki de Gunsberg, which was never really documented but mm-hmm. was described. And he was this kind of iconic editor, like fashion editor and sometimes designer, and he sort of had this really grand upbringing. I think he lived like the Creon Paris, like as a kid or something, mm-hmm. and then kind of lost everything and came to New York and had to figure out how to like work for a living, right. but sort of lived apparently in some tiny one grand little room in an apartment <laughs> in a townhouse on the east side. So it's the same scale, but just like tiny, tiny room. Yeah, yeah. like squished in there uh-huh. with all these like worldly possessions from like his <laughs> former life is like essentially a prince. And uh-huh. um, I was so taken with that. And also just his whole like thing, his whole personality. I read things that he'd written and I just loved it. So anyway, so I kind of based my apartment off of that. And also a little bit on the apartment of the children in um, the uh, Cocteau book Enfant Terrible, mm-hmm. and the movie of that. How'd that take shape? What were you? What were you doing? What were the steps you took? Well, I added all this molding <laughs> to the apartment first because it wasn't wasn't quite French enough. <laughs> And so I bought all this plastic molding and like hot glued it to the wall, basically. <laughs> elegant. Um, very elegant process. And um, we revived that whole process for Cynthia's show, actually. Mm. The landlord was thrilled. And I made this uh, enormous canopy bed mm-hmm. that was like really over the top and made curtains. I made this huge mirror hung lots of things. I I was hanging things in the shape of a big face. It was kind of like an Arcamboldo arrangement of hanging paintings, etc. Um everything was, you know, just little like wherever I could find it or buy it or make it, but very very inexpensively done. But the whole thing came together and it was actually really fun. And then I photographed it with Andre Herrero, mm-hmm. my <laughs> business partner. Now, because at the time, um, I didn't really know him, but I admired his work, his architecture work, certainly. What stood up? The first thing that I saw that he did that was really amazing to me is this kind of gothic-inspired skyscraper made all out of glass. And it was just so goth and weird and, like, scary and sharp-looking. And I just... (laughs) But it was also so different than what anyone was doing in the architecture department. Uh And I just saw this model and I was like, oh my God, like, who is this? And he was like, oh, it's like, it's like my Gothic tower in this forest in Bavaria that I'm making. (laughs) It's a skyscraper. It's just an office building in Bavaria. And I was like, this guy's amazing. And then 
I put it together that he had photographed a bunch of my friend's work because he's a really good photographer. And, um, and so I asked him if he would photograph my apartment. And he had the idea to photograph it with all different cameras mm-hmm. at all different times of day to create the kind of illusion in the narrative of photographs that it had been lived in over a long period of time. Sort of like, a, like an invented history for yeah, this apartment. which was just so brilliant. Yeah, genius. So we did that, and I presented those photos in my thesis along with those three objects that I said. So from the beginning, there is this kind of element of like sort of in, inventing these worlds and giving them history, and, and there's also something kind of like tongue-in-cheek about it, too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love that. So what... So. If at the time, um, well, I guess you're doing that at RISD, you, you, you do this, this thesis, so it seems like that's almost the first kind of space you did, right? Yeah. Um, what did you do after that when you're... Um, I moved to New York and I started working at Ralph Lauren in their home department, their housewares department. My job there was to assist the uh, creative director of the furniture department and a few other people involved in the process of of making the collections their reality with finding reference material. So basically I was organizing a library of images and of books and film stills and kind of whatever we might need to mm-hmm. flesh out a given world mm-hmm. um, that was always correlated to the apparel collections of that season. And it was a really amazing experience because I just kind of got to research like everything about design history because Ralph Lauren's kind of DNA is this very all-encompassing. I mean, they certainly have a very pointed take mm-hmm. on history but you know they do these collections that take you know that that might uh try to conjure all different parts of the world and all different time periods mm-hmm. and i got to really like immerse myself in the visual material of those things mm-hmm. and it was really cool i learned a lot i mean it was very like self-directed mm-hmm. fun Period. Is that kind of where a lot of the references that you use now come from, or from that time? Or? A very significant amount, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when I talk to you about your projects, there's there's sort of a jumping off point that you're saying, like, I was looking at this room, or I was, I was looking at this person. Yeah. I mean, how do you go about researching, and how do you organize kind of visual information? How do you, uh, Yeah. where do you go for that? I love magazines. Mm-hmm. Top three magazines, what are they? Oh my god! Um, <laughs> Don't forget anyone. Pinup Magazine, World of Interiors, and oh gosh, <laughs> Pinup Magazine, World of Interiors, and I guess like you're about to make someone so angry. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't know. It. An Architectural Digest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Um, Architectural Digest, of course. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I love like old magazines mm-hmm. more than anything. I have to say, like. Old Architectural Digest, for real, mm-hmm. just bowl me over. And I have all of them, or, you know, a lot of them, like mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of them. <laughs> Old World of Interiors also from the Minhog days are just, like, so cool. And Old Domus magazines, amazing. Nest magazine, mm-hmm. amazing. 
So I love old magazines. I love movies. I'm always watching movies and taking film stills. And that, I don't know, you know, I mean, there are pretty obvious kind of connections between, like, designing someone's universe and, uh, you know, the role of a director. I don't know. I don't really see myself as a director, though, for people's lives. I mean... I don't know what they do with the spaces after we make them together. And they're very collaborative. There are similarities, like, production-wise to movies between what I do and, and a filmmaker. I mean, they both, both processes involve tons of different people mm-hmm. coming together for this, like, single vision that is inherently, like, very collaborative. You're basically you're starting to think about rooms in, in college and... Um obviously you've been doing furniture and then you have this time to sort of sit with like all this, this huge archive of material. Um, what was the step or prompt that when you started saying like, Hey, I want to start my own firm. Cause you're very young to start to have your own thing. And yeah. How did you, how did you hook up with Andre and, and what was the impetus to be like, we're going to do this jump in. Yeah. So I was working at Ralph Lauren and I was kind of moonlighting on, uh, projects for this one family that was super generous to me at the beginning and really um, encouraging. And they gave me, you know, kind of one room to do in their apartment at a time. And when it was finished, I would just move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they moved. They sold their apartment. They moved. They bought a house. And then they also bought a house in Long Island. And I was kind of doing those and uh, or I was doing the house in Long Island. The house in New York, they hired an architecture firm to do it, so ill, and Andre was assigned to be the project architect for this house, just coincidentally. Mm-hmm. And I met him again for the first time since college because he had been at college for a year more than I had. Uh, the architecture school is a year longer than the other programs. And... I went to a meeting about this house and it was a meeting with Andre and I hadn't even realized. And we hit it off so well a second time. I mean, we had worked with each other just doing the photography for my apartment, so mm-hmm. I didn't really know him that well, but we enjoyed working on this this townhouse so much together. And um, it was very fruitful collaboration. And at the end of that, I got approached to do... A gallery and it was clear that to take it on I would need a real architecture an architect's skill set and an architect's set of eyes and um, I couldn't do it alone you know just as an interior designer um, so I could have I guess at that point maybe outsourced it and hired someone else but Andre was was there and um, we we were enjoying working together so much that I asked him if he would help me and so he he helped me on that kind of you know he was moonlighting at that point mm-hmm. I left Ralph Lauren around then and in the middle of that project we got another project and before we knew it it was kind of like we had enough on our plate that he would sort of need to make a choice and he left and we started our firm properly. So we were never really, I mean, we're very lucky because we're never really waiting around for a phone to ring. Mm-hmm. We kind of just did it because the projects were there mm-hmm. and they felt like too good to be true or too good to not take. I know that we're young to be doing this and I 
certainly always had a fantasy of kind of being someone's mentor and learning from one of the designers that I really admire um, and really, you know, getting very, very good at what I do before I strike out on my own. That was always something I wanted to do, but Mm -hmm. it just didn't present itself that way. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of took the projects as they came and they were really good. I was really, we were extremely fortunate. Some of our early, earliest projects were for people that, um, were very creative, brought a lot to the table, um, in every way and, you know, made it really fun. One of the cool things about Charlotte Pyman Herrero, your firm with Andre, is that there's like a really crazy breadth to the kinds of projects you take on. You know, you do you do these curatorial projects, projects in the art world, residential, commercial. What was the what was your initial thought on on like what the identity of the firm would be? Or was it always meant to be this kind of sprawling sprawling thing? I would say that, yeah, well, we do a lot of different kinds of work, a lot of different typologies. Uh, Our practice is really varied, from textile design to furniture design to gallery, exhibition, domestic spaces, offices. I mean, it's really uh, operas. I would love to do a film set one day. (laughs) But I think... It wasn't really such a specific vision. I mean, at the beginning, we didn't say, oh, you know, we would like to be doing everything. Mm -hmm. I think we just, we both have a lot of interests in different media and different, different formats for our work. I mean, he's a photographer that is an architect Mm -hmm. and he's really interested in fashion and he had you know, amazing. He has amazing taste in furniture and a really strong interest in in the decorative arts in a way that's pretty unusual, I would say, for a lot of architects our age. So, I think you know, and and I am really interested in architecture and serious architecture. I I don't you know fool myself that I'm you know an architect really. I I'm I'm a designer and um, I I really admire the work that that architects do. Um, I guess that's one of the reasons why you guys collaborate well together is that you're really bringing these different skill sets to the table. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think we bring, we bring very different things to the table and we've taught each other so much, but yeah, so we didn't really set out to make a firm that does all these different kinds of things, but then just different kinds of things just started to come our way because we know different people in different kinds of fields and sort of all these opportunities would just appear that were like, well, you know, we've never done a a fashion shoot set before, you know, but I guess why couldn't we? Mm-hmm. And um, and that seems so fun. And so maybe after the first few times that things like that happened, we started to feel more comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I guess, you know, if we can do a fashion shoot, then why couldn't we do an opera set? Uh, you know, we both really love opera. So, you know, why not? And what was the first opera that you did? It was Popea, really, really, really beautiful opera by Cavalli that uh, was directed by Zach Winokur at uh, Juilliard. It was, well, it's a really amazing piece of music it's also one of the first sort of proper operas it was first probably staged in a kind of private theater in someone's home um sort of pre-opera as like a 
a ticketed thing, mm-hmm. but not long before it, really at the early the early days of, of all of that. And um, we uh, worked really closely with Zach to make this uh, set that was kind of reminiscent of some kind of salon in which this opera might have been staged uh, the first time but also was visible as as a garden or or the woods it's a uh, a beautiful tale of people a sort of love triangle in in the woods it was it was a really fun thing to do also because it was one of the first times that we got to commission an artist to make an element of our space mm-hmm. Uh, which was something that we really wanted to do. I mean, so many of the interiors that I really admire throughout history are these kind of put-together spaces by lots of different people and that have the kind of fingerprints of all different amazing creative minds on them. Mm-hmm. For that opera, we we were so excited to work with Misha Khan on these lighting fixtures. Um, so he made all these sconces and chandeliers. We also worked with my mom, who painted the uh, scenic kind of wallpaper, so to speak, that went around this salon space. And it was a black box theater, so the audience kind of felt like they were in this salon watching this thing. It was very intimate. That was the first opera we did. Finally, I just wanted to talk about this collaboration you've done with Schumacher and Patterson Flynn Martin, where you've been doing a collection of rugs, textiles, fabrics. How did uh, how did they approach you to do that? That whole thing, which was just such a blessing, um, because I always wanted to do textile design. For the first time you've done that? Well, I guess properly. I did it in I did it in college a little bit, and I uh, I had done well. Actually, I had done this pattern in college for my thesis that became one of the patterns in our collection for Schumacher, which is the one with the snakes. But, you know, when I did it in college, it was just digitally printed. You know, it wasn't like really amazing quality fabric the way that it is now uh, in the Schumacher collection. But, you know, since then I had toyed around with doing something and my mom and I really wanted to do something together textile wise, but uh, we just couldn't really figure out like where to start and how to make that happen. It was mm-hmm. just uh, kind of daunting. The minimums that one has to order for a single design are just astro- astronomical. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, you know, are we going to start a fabric company? Yeah. Or, <laughs> you know, short of that is I like don't know. very difficult. So, yeah. yeah. So you could start a fabric company with your mom. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe cool. one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, we had all these ideas and we would talk about ideas occasionally. And then, Anyways, I made this straw rug, an abaca rug, for a client. We we made her this lovely little round rug for a foyer that um, had woven into it all of these fallen food items from a dinner party. So there was like half-eaten fish and some fruit and some leaves and like bits of berries and mussels and a, yeah, like that kind of stuff all over all over the rug basically and um it was a little bit inspired by calder's straw rugs um that he made in the um 60s i didn't know calder did straw rugs yeah well they're tapestries they're not really rugs they hang on the wall but they're they're beautiful yeah he did these beautiful hand-woven straw rugs he did some circus circus ones they're they're fantastic and also some more abstract things so we made this rug for them for this client and uh 
Dara Caponegro from Schumacher, who's the creative director there, and Schumacher and Patterson, Flynn and Martin are our sister brands. She saw it basically because, well, she saw it because our salesperson at Patterson, Flynn and Martin, who is like sort of a fairy godmother of the D&D building, mm-hmm. um, showed her the rug when it came in. And she she liked it, and she asked us to come to lunch and talk about doing some kind of small collection. And um, initially it was supposed to be three rugs, but we came with so many ideas for fabric and rugs that they ended up doing, like, I think eight rugs and seven fabrics and wallpapers or something. So you just went in there and blew it up. (laughs) It was really fun. And we just sort of, I don't know, they let us just go for it. It's really crazy. I still can't even believe that they gave us such freedom. And, And then they did such a beautiful job making all of this stuff. I mean, my mom and I did the artwork. What was that? What's that like collaborating with your, with your mother? It's really fun. It's really a nice thing. I mean, we don't always get along about things unrelated to our work together, but but within the realm within of design, the realm of design, yeah. I mean, it's a really fun way to like know your mom. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We we just we work together well and Do you find that your tastes are super similar? Yeah, I mean, she made my taste, yeah. so <laughs> I'm a very direct uh, reflection of hers. Right. And, um, yeah, it's like a similar... I mean, I know I said this about Cynthia, but it would it's really accurate about working with my mom. I mean, we mm-hmm. finish each other's sentences. Like, we can kind of draw on each other's styles. Right. Like, we come up with the same... We enjoy the same motifs. I mean, there's a lot of overlap. Were, a lot, gone, of the, were pretty... a lot of the motifs that you're working with in those, in you know, in the in the rugs and the fabrics, were they things you've been sitting on for a while? I mean, I know you had the, the snakes come from your from your thesis, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of little sort of peculiar things. Like there's a fabric where there's these little insects, or it's I guess maybe wallpaper, these insects yeah. being sort of pinned up to the wall. And there's, you know, there's... Kind of these small motifs. Uh, What was the inspiration behind a lot of them? The inspiration, I would say, was it's very disparate. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were all it's all different sources. A lot of it comes from I think a lot of it just comes from kind of thinking of things that I would really like to have in my life somehow, or that I would like to be able to put in someone's project or. I mean, one of our wallpapers is all is all these pigeons and bows, and the bows are kind of directly lifted from this fence in Chelsea that I always walk by that mm-hmm. I really love that has these metal bows on it. I don't know who lives there, but I really want to like meet a, them like one a private day. residence. Or? Yeah, it's like someone's townhouse, and they have these like bows on a fence that are just oh, cool. so cool. Um, so it's a combination of these bows and these kind of groupings of pigeons, and the layout. And the color are pretty directly inspired by, you know, almost a copy of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas's wallpaper in their apartment in Paris, which I have tried so hard in vain to find mm-hmm. for a project and mm-hmm. couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, screw it, I'll make my own. <laughs> I kind of made my own, but I mean, it's it's definitely supposed to be like theirs, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I think it's fun that it looks kind of like theirs because their apartment is so amazing. And um, that's an amazing, space. wonderful thing to think about. I just, I just came across those uh, those armchairs that Picasso did needlepoint yeah. designs for, just kind of my preparation for this. I was like looking at stuff and reading stuff. And 
Yeah, yeah. those are my favorite chairs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing apartment. It's just so good, and it's just so, I yeah, it's so sincere. Like I always think with all of these interiors things. I mean, my favorite interiors are interiors of people that don't use decorators most of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mondragino excluded, but like in general, I really love spaces that are are just sincerely put together by people that you know have an amazing life and an appreciation for material culture like mm-hmm. have this kind of interesting relationship to objects and you know their I, their apartment is 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 one of the great one of the great sincere apartments that i can think of you know mm-hmm. it's just such a personal space that's become so historic yeah i really appreciate that so it was, it's a fun idea to make wallpaper that reminds you of, of that apartment all the time because it's just a nice, it's a nice thing to like have to encounter all day. If you walk by it every day, it's in your vestibule or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was the inspiration for that wallpaper. And then we did, we did a cloud wallpaper that was very much inspired by the murals in the movie Salo, which is a very scary movie. I don't necessarily want you to have to think of Salo every time you see the <laughs> wallpaper, but it's this amazing villa, and there are these murals everywhere, and they're kind of painted in the style of Leger, and we we sort of made our clouds kind of on that scale, and they also sort of look like Jopani ceramics, so... They're kind of a mix of things. Yeah, there's the bugs tacked to the wall, which is, I guess, just supposed to be like some kind of insect collector's study, but also is a little bit, um, well, it's very trompe l'oeil. Mm-hmm. There, you see the um, shadows of the paper and the insects and the pins. I guess we were kind of thinking about specifically like Carlo Molino's insects on the walls in his apartment and Turin and some other things. So yeah, there's a, well, a lot of different, a lot of different stuff. So I, I have one, I have one weird thing that I just remembered that I thought would be funny to ask you about. So in my, in my research, uh, in just, just, you know, looking at stuff leading up to this, there's one thing that I found that I thought was very, very funny, which was a news segment, a Chinese news segment <laughs> Featuring a young Adam oh, no. <laughs> who is working very, back to very, very, very closely with a set of scissors. Do you want to explain what you're doing there? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is so funny. I can't even believe it. You're dubbed. I, was, I wanted to hear what you're saying, but you're dubbed in Chinese. You know? I know. So you hear the first kind of three words you say, and then it turns into Chinese. And I don't know what's going on. For a second, I thought you were speaking Chinese, and I thought yeah. that was no, amazing. Not, not quite that advanced. Um, <laughs> what was going on there? I uh, <laughs> I don't know actually. Uh-huh. Um, no, so I yeah I, I guess in the winter of my freshman year of college, I went to Nanjing to study with a master paper cutter named Chen Yao, who is kind of one of the inheritors, one of the last people that can really do the art of Chinese paper cutting, the traditional Chinese paper cutting. Which is staggering. Yeah. I gotta say, I mean, it's like yeah, he, so intricate. He's one of the, the last guys that can really do that, and he learned from someone who had 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 it passed down to them. So 
It's very special. Yeah, he he has a little workshop in Nanjing, and he makes these enormous, enormous... I mean, not all of them are big, but sometimes he makes these enormous paper cuts out of single sheets of rice paper that are just, you know, coming off of an enormous roll. And the stakes are so high because it's such a huge thing, and if you just messed it up, you'd have to do it all over again. And by large, I mean, like, maybe 30 feet long. Mm-hmm. Months of work. Months and mm-hmm. months of work. And so meticulous with little knives that he makes himself. I went there to uh, study with him. I was really interested in paper cutting, and I'd been looking a lot at Hans Christian Andersen's paper cuts, which he made when he was telling stories, like in the kind of different courts that he would visit. Um, He would be telling a story, and as he was telling it, he'd be making a cutout, and it was always folded, so then the end of the story it would unfold and be this amazing kind of reveal of like what the thing was that he was cutting it out yeah I was just making all of these paper cuts and then I thought it would be really cool to go to China and do that and I figured out how to get introduced to this guy and he invited me to come and he didn't speak English and I didn't really speak Chinese and it was really hard I didn't have any days off or anything and it was in the middle of the winter and there was no (laughs) heating and you learned discipline it was really disciplined I was really disciplined while I was working for him and um I kind of just didn't speak to anyone for for two months while I was there because I couldn't speak with anyone and uh, focused on learning how to cut paper, which I can you cut paper learned. Well, I mean, I don't know what Chen Yao thinks, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that the average American would be relatively impressed by mm-hmm. how well I can use a pair of scissors. Yes, <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank Adam Charlotte Hyman, as well as Andre Herrero, Alex Hyman, Juliet Breza, Felix Berchter, and Friedman Benda. Remember, you can see my portrait of Adam on Instagram at William Jess Laird and at Image Culture, as well as at our website, williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture. This show is produced by Sarah Levine, and our music is by Jack and Eliza. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>